What happens when a New York Jew and a Malay Chinese Buddhist walk into a virtual tea shop and sit down to talk about the true medicine of Yangsheng? How do two experienced practitioners of Chinese medicine in the U.S. with such different cultural backgrounds but a shared classical foundation not only treat patients but also embody Chinese medicine as a living philosophy? What is the meaning of life and death and Yangsheng? And what is the human role in harmonizing heaven and earth, especially in the context of practicing Chinese medicine in modern clinic? How can Zhuangzi help in treating cancer? How do we adapt traditional Chinese medicine in the context of multicultural diversity, environmental pollution, plastic surgery, and confused microbiomes? I am your host, Dr. Sabina Vibes, and I'm joined today by Liu Lok, our resident purveyor of multiple perspectives of this podcast, as well as by my dear friend, Zev Rosenberg. Before we get into the conversation, let me remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com slash connect to get notified of new episodes and other offerings. And please rate and review and share this podcast wherever you can. It really helps us out. Thank you. Okay, so this is Leo, and I would like to talk a little bit about the issue uh, or the topic of embodiment of Chinese medicine, because it is not a, a given or automatic thing that the practitioner of Chinese medicine automatically embodies the medicine to the fullest. Yeah, we all try to be our best, but not all of us have the ability or the maturity or the good fortune to fully embody the medicine to the fullest at in all stages of our personal or professional life. So I think that is a fair observation, I think. And I want to bring out one story which uh, illustrate this point. So back in 2007, there was a very famous and popular lecturer at the uh, National University of Taiwan, or commonly called Taida. She was um, she was voted six years in a row for her teaching or Zhuangzi. She was very popular with the the students at Taida. And she came from a very prominent medical family, both in Chinese medicine and Western medicine, right? And her, her PhD thesis was on Huangdi Neijing, Guangxiang Hanlun, and all the medical text. But in 2007, she was diagnosed with cancer, right? And she was dying, basically. And the doctor told her, you know, you're too weak. And um, the cancer has spread to your digestive system and your lymphatic system. All we can do is chemo and radiation, and we can do nothing else, right? And and you have like a 25% chance of surviving in the next five years. So as she was lying in her bed in the, at a hospital, she was like, oh, wait a second. I came from such prominent medical families on both sides of my families. And my dad was like the disciple of Zheng Manqing, you know, the one of the most famous Taiji oh, yeah. uh, boxing master <laughs> at that time. And she said, how am I so end up so sick? I taught medical classics at the university and I was so famous for it and people respected mm. me for it. What went wrong? 
And in her introspection, she found out that well, yes, I was the, one of the very best Zhuangzi and medical classic teachers in <laughs> Taiwan, but I hardly embodied the teaching.、Mm-hmm. You know how did she become so famous and so good? She said, you know, if my colleagues at the university were to walk past my office. They will see that my lights are on from ten o'clock in the in the evening to five a.m. in the next morning. That、oh, was、man. how I got so good. I was so strict with my grad students. I had to have everything perfect. I had to be the best of the best, not because of, for my ego, but I'm. I was such a perfectionist. Oh, Lee, I cannot. I don't want to hear this story. <laughs> You telling the story for me? I mean, for every one of us. This is what、know? my daughter tells me. This is what my neighbors tell me. My neighbors,、no. they see my light in my studio on. Oh no, Leo!、She、I was, don't want to hear this. <laughs> she was so humbled by her own omission, right?、Mm-hmm. And she was like,、mm-hmm. "Okay, but I have the ability to turn this around because more than anybody else, I have、mm-hmm. the knowledge." And I have the lineage,、mm. so she started her practice right there on, on her、uh, deathbed, basically. And she said, "Look, I got all these tubes hooked into me, the IVs and everything. And every time I have a fluctuation in my emotion and my thinking process, the tubes tells me whether I'm going towards death." Or I'm coming back to、wow. life, right? She started doing this gratitude practice, and the flow of the bleeding shifted. Right, every time there、mm. is a negative thought that comes out in her mind, she could see the liquids and the fluids in the tubes shifting. She said, "Aha! That is the core teaching of Zhuangzi, working with the Shen because." Zhuangzi has the term called shen, a、uh, ning, shen ning, to to calm and and、uh, pacify and sort of equalize the mind and the shen,、mm. right? And then she says, "Oh, there's all this teaching that was ignored for so long. People who teach Zhuangzi doesn't see that he has a physical teaching. Yuan du mai yi wei jing, the the, the、yeah. alignment of the spine." Yeah, right. Become yeah. the Jing. Become what is Zev is, likes to.、Uh, Zev, what was your, your favorite translation for Jing? Again, like、uh, the the Jing as the as in the essence. No, like、uh, the longitude. Oh, oh, the like the channel, like the.、Uh, yeah, exactly. You, know, you had a channel, favorite term, warp, like yeah, warp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it depends jing, on the context as far as what translation I use. Yeah. yeah as well, I think Jing is the guide guiding line, right? So use the spine as the guiding line as a guiding post. So there was actually quite a bit of physical teachings in Zhuangzi, but is obscured because people who study Zhuangzi are usually philosophers. Yes, they they、yeah. could not see the physical practice that's embedded in his teaching. So she started, you know,、uh, and she was like, "Oh, I I had the, I had to go to the bathroom twenty times a night because they had to radiate her lower abdomen, right? And she scared off all her caretakers. Nobody would stay with her for more than twenty four hours. They would quit." Just like I have to carry you to the bathroom twenty times a night, I can't do that. Wow! Right? And then what did she do? She started doing tai chi in her around her bed. And then her caretaker said, "What did you just do last night? Please keep doing it because you're down to two times a night now."、Hmm. Right? So that's how she gradually recovered. She would go back like. To her doctor, and people would be really sick and sad in the waiting room. She would walk around in her taiji, xu、uh, and shi, her empty and full steps. You know, alternating <laughs> her. She would she practice going around and around the the waiting room for hours until she could see her doctor.、Mm. So she was diagnosed in July twenty, two thousand seven, and she fully recovered. 
by the following May. There was zero cancer in her, and her doctors thought that was a miracle. It just disappeared from her body completely. By going back to all the practices that she had learned through her 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 medic her you know her textual training and her philosophical training, so now it has been sixteen years. She's still alive. She's fifty eight now. She got sick when she was only forty two. She's fifty eight now, and she's teaching everywhere now. On these physical practice and these philosophical practices, and she's blending all of that. I think she's published about six books now, but she's all over YouTube. You know, people love her. She's just radiant. Ah,、oh, wow! What a beautiful story. Yeah. So that's that's the story I want to share because Professor Tai really demonstrated for us the importance of embodiment. Somebody as trained as her, as knowledgeable as her, came from th- such prominent medical families and sc- cultivation lineages, could still fall for the same trap of perfectionism. And and com- it's isn't it ironic? That's what she said. She said, "Oh, what I what made me famous was the teaching." But I、yeah. did exactly the opposite of the teaching, and I was still <laughs> the most、uh, well-known teacher on the topic. That is the irony of it.、Huh. You know, I'm gonna stop right <laughs> there and let you two respond <laughs> and share your experience. It's it's so true、um, that that th- and that's the irony. And I think we a lot of times I pick topics that I need to be learning about. Like I'm doing the Yangqing, well, I started the translation of Sun Tzu's Yangqing volume at the beginning of the co- of the COVID pandemic because I felt like I really ner- needed to learn about nurturing life, and we all needed it. But and I do think that's the perfect topic to talk about with with Zev in the room because Zev、yes. is one of those people who take this real. Like I think of all the Chinese medicine practitioners I know. Zev, you take this so you you really honor that 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 medicine as philosophy and that embodiment of Chinese medicine in in your own daily life. So so Zev, jump jump in here. I'm I'm looking forward to just kind of being quiet and listening to you to toss the ball. Well, you've kind of caught me at a very interesting time and crossroads in my own life. Having to do with this self-nurturing, self-cultivation. As you know, I started practicing macrobiotics in my teen years, and it's as we discussed last time. Macrobiotics is one translation that Paul Unschuld used for Yang Sheng for nourishing life, and、uh, I'm sure that's where Georgia Sauer really came up with that idea in his own study of Chinese and Asian medical texts. So it was like a one of the、uh, legs, one of the foundations of the vast system teachings of Chinese medicine is that self cultivation with dietetics, therapeutic exercise,、um, as well as our treatments. As we discussed last time, how Zhang Shichun said that the purpose in his mind of practicing Chinese medicine. And using needles, moxas, and herbal medicine—that those are teaching tools to teach the philosophy of the Neijing to his patients—and that's been one of my major banners, one of my major、uh, drives in in my own work and trying to fulfill the teachings that I find in the Neijing in my own imperfect way. But as I keep learning and growing and applying, but Leo raises a very interesting question, having to do with this because.、Um, As you know,、uh, Sabina, you and I lost a dear friend last year.、Um, did I mention names? Is that okay? That's of course. Yeah, of course. Lillian. Yeah. And and I have another very close friend who was a student of Chen Munching, who developed severe Parkinson's, and he's you know in in a you know he's basically in a nursing home, despite his、uh, practicing those teachings and a Chinese medical way of life, and. I'm trying to find the factor that has people like 
Leo's colleague surviving and living such a full life. And other people still, even with all the good things going down a road that leads to sudden swift death. You know, it's, this, these are very difficult things. And I'm not trying to be cynical. And anyway, I definitely believe that's possible. I've also seen that happen in people. But I'm at a point in my life because of issues happening in my own family and people close to me of how do you make that leap? How do you move forward into a realm where that spontaneous self-healing can happen? And I know it can. So that's where I'm at right now. It's, oh, right, man, it's you, big... you're throwing a huge issue in there by mentioning Lillian because I have had countless conversations with friends about could we have prevented Lillian's death? And what I, how I've made, I've struggled for a year and a half now with Lillian's sudden illness and death. And I've been, we've all experienced a number of, and, and we're all getting older, right? So death is becoming yeah. um, more of a reality for us as we all age. And um, how I've made peace with Lillian's death is, is I no longer want to sugarcoat death. I'm really thinking right. about death right now. Right. And I think Lillian fulfilled her Ming, her destiny. She yes. completed her, she was dedicated her, her gold, what she called the golden path in this lifetime was to pass the teachings from her family lineage on. And she created that complete system and passed it on. So there's, there's, there's that, uh, Leo. This, this, this is probably not where you wanted or where you anticipated this conversation to go. Um, it's kind of a derailer from the life, the philosophy, oh. medicine as philosophy. It's a not totally really. other. It makes it so much I, more I, complex. I, I like it because that's part of the the vision or that we want to have for our podcast. Right? Is that we. We have a general direction, but we don't have any strict agenda of how things should unfold. That's yeah. the beauty of it. And there's just so much to talk about. Like, like yeah. I don't want to um, take us away from your from your starting point of um, exploring Im the embodiment of Chinese medicine by practitioners. I think that's a really wonderful point that both of you have a lot to share about and and I think there has to be a, a huge foundation of compassion when we talk about this oh, topic yes. yeah. in the sense that because it's, it can be very quickly sort of uh, degenerate into a very judgmental uh, atmosphere of yeah exactly you yours you're screwed up because you didn't follow the laws. Because the Neijing says, if you follow mm -hmm. the laws of heaven, you'll thrive. If you don't follow it, you'll die. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> the, I, I'd oh, love please. to comment on that. That's, uh, yes. Um, first of all, um, we live, as they say, in very different times right now. I mean, there's a thousand forever chemicals mm. in our water. 80% yes. of urine samples in this country have Roundup in them, which is a cancer-causing chemical. We are being inundated by toxins from the environment, and no one knows to the extent which that is. And in the, mm. without avoiding conspiracy theories and other things, but we, we are not able to detect just how serious it is, but my feeling is that it's very serious. As I, told, as I wrote about in my own, my latest book, um, Afterglow, when I took a trip to Hawaii just before the pandemic started, the air, the sky was blue, but there was something wrong with it, I could sense. The ocean was beautiful, but it was tainted. The land itself wasn't right. The interchange of heaven and earth and the human relationship that was established during Han Dynasty uh, philosophy and metaphysics was not right. Things are out of whack, and we have to take that into account with anything. As far as the judgmental aspect, I mean, we are all healers, physicians in our own realms. And it's very easy for people to say, oh, your health isn't perfect? It means, I'm, how can you possibly teach this? 
So I have a colleague of many, many, many years in the macrobiotic community who uh, just died at se same age as me, 70 years old. And he's been, you know, on his Facebook page, um, um, that, oh, he was had such a pure diet and all that. How come he died like that? Bladder cancer, you know? So um, he pointed out before he died that he had smoked for many years. One of the unfortunate lacuna in the macrobiotic community was smoking. But I pointed out to people that, hey, the leaders of the macrobiotic movement all died of cancer or died in their 70s. There's no guarantees of anything. We're not perfect. And we live in a flawed world. What we're doing is we're, what I see is like Emerson said that one should, what Ralph Waldo Emerson said, one should hitch one's wagon to the highest star. Not because you'll ever reach that star, but because it inspires you to move ahead, forward, and upwards in life. So to me, the teachings of the Neijing are like a guiding star. And what I tell students when I teach, also when I taught Sun Tzu Miao, I remember one class I gave at Peacock many years ago in New York, at the end of my lecture, there was total silence. <laughs> I just overwhelmed people. I guess I was teaching too high. And <laughs> this one guy stands up, nice New York Jewish guy, and says, how do you expect us to live up to this stuff? <laughs> right? <laughs> I can just see you, Seth, because you live in San Diego. And for me, San Diego, Southern California is like the land. Like, I'm always intimidated to go there because it's the land of the perfect bodies. Because everybody oh, yeah. eats, like, only organic food and exercises oh. and gets enough sunshine. And I wish that was the case. And it's very I'm wealthy. So there is a lot of privilege okay. about... I'll finish the first story yeah. and then I'll... I'll address that as well. So the first one is I said to him was the Ralph Waldo Emerson line, which is like you hitch a wagon to your star. You need to be inspired by something lofty in order to grow. I mean, if your standard is the gutter, that's where he'll go. If your standard's a higher place, at least you have you can progress, grow, be inspired, and help others in maybe in an imperfect way, but that's what you have to do. As far as Southern California, um, <laughs> To me, this is the land. Forgive me for anybody who's had plastic surgery. I understand it could be a very good tool and helpful for burn victims, for all self-esteem. I'm not damning plastic surgery, but this has become the land of the trout pout and the butt lift and the tummy tuck and all these other things that are very surgical, very artificial, and people may be hyper-working out to the point mm -hmm. of exhaustion they may be juicing themselves to the point of burning out their spleen chi. There's all kinds of other excesses that can go on the other side of that. It's not necessarily a balanced form of life, you know. So, I mean, there are people who are, but um, it's not as much as people think. You know, California, like a lot of places now in the world, is a land of extremes. Yeah. We've got very wealthy people driving Teslas. Almost every house in my block now has solar. I'm blessed to have solar also on my house, but everybody else has a Tesla. And this has just happened in the last few years. And houses are worth, you know, close to $2 million, you know, normal middle-class family homes. And meanwhile, downtown, there are homeless encampments and people doing fentanyl and, you know, crank and a very toxic form of methadrine that kills your brain cells after two uh, hits. You know, so it's a it's a land of extremes, and I think we're navigating that kind of a world. And in Judaism, we call the correct path the derech hazahab, the golden path, the middle way. You know, between the extremes. Like politically, people ask me where my I stand. I say I'm a radical centrist, <laughs> but I can't find any center in the political landscape. You know, it's... And you know, that's what Leo and I talked about when we first started talking about the podcast. Remember, Leo, that we wanted to not have, not be another divisive voice, whether we're advocating a purist classical Chinese medicine version or, or, or whether we're advocating TCM or whether we're advocating for academia versus scholars, we want to bring people together and we want to be a voice of, of, of building bridges and, and the center, right, 
Leo, you, I think you put yeah. it much nicer than I did. And we did talk about the circle, the, the metaphor of a circle. Uh, yeah. And I, th I think I really appreciate what Zev brought in about the environmental toxin, because that's like bringing another dimension to the circle that classically we don't talk about because there was no need to, right? Because when I returned to Southeast Asia, I observed the similar things. Neighbors, kids, and grandchildren would suffer from this rarest form of cancer that we have never seen before when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. I was like, where did that come from? My nose told me. Can I share this story? So, please. So, yeah. in Malaysia, we, you know, we pride ourselves in cooking. So, all of our neighbors cook. We have Malay neighbors, we have Indian neighbors. So, I had this neighbor across the, the alley in our, from our backyard, and they were cooking up this uh, incredibly, you know, delicious smelling curries, <laughs> right? It's just wafted <laughs> up into through our windows. I smell it right now. Right? I mean, the, the South Indians, they've been doing it for mm. centuries, you know, they're just superb at doing it. And then the next minute, did you know what I smell? It was the, um, these uh, chemicals from somebody's changing their oil <laughs> and liquids because mm. there was no regulation over there. Right. So the other neighbor was changing doing oil change of his vehicle to the next of us. And then they just pour the used whatever liquids or oil into the street. Oh my God. <laughs> right? Yeah. That just, yeah. like, in that moment, I realized, oh, but you're not allowed to do that in most places in America. You have to bottle right. it up and you have to send it to special places where they, you cannot just pour it down the drain and let it go into you know, the wastewater system and go directly to the rivers and the ocean. That's you can't do that in America, but you could do that in many parts of the developing mm. world where they don't care for the regulations or even have an awareness that they're putting poison into the environment. Oh, I remember I, said, I lived next to a paint factory when I lived in, in Taichung. No, no, I think it was in Taipei, like decades ago. And there was a creek behind our little apartment, and it would change color depending on uh, what they were pouring into the, into the creek from that little there, factory. There was a story, the, the, one of the New York Times correspondents in Beijing wrote a story that after 10 years in Beijing, where she left her home village in the south of China, she went yeah. back finally to visit her family. And she said when she had left, there was a river, you know, like the movie, a river runs through it, ran down the center of town. There were, you know, gardens and fields all around the river. People were drinking out of the river, mm -hmm. irrigating their fields out of it. When she went back, the river was many colors. The uh, landscape was all factories. The gardens were all gone, and the cancer rates had quadrupled in 10 years. You know, this is, uh, I mean, it sounds exaggerated, but in this case, it definitely mm. is not. And um, yeah, it's it's in everyone's backyard. So it's. I think this is a major aspect. And that's one of the things I tried to bring out in, in this new book. That's why I call it Chinese Ecological Medicine. If, if, if there's an argument, rather than trying, you know, I don't mind people working with any type of health professional, uh, biomedical, Ayurvedic, uh, craniosacral, whatever. But the integrative thing as the main push for our medicine, I don't think is the correct one. I think the correct is that we have an ecological environmental view of life and medicine that is sorely needed on this planet right now and will contribute to its survival. You know, I really feel very strongly about this. And if I have one message in my own work, it's that, that we have to do something as humanity, you know, in order to reverse this trend that- uh, It's about harmonizing are. heaven and earth, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're supposed yeah. to be the vehicle for that, you know? And there's another doctor from mainland China, I think it's Dr. Luo, he was a really famous author and he has very influential. 
But then one year, I think I was maybe ten years ago, he quit. He he was like, um, I don't think there's any point. I, I mean, it sounds a little extreme of mm-hmm. doing medicine in this country. He says, uh, because so many of our people are suffering from environmental toxins. Mm-hmm. It's like I can do all these classical formulas and everything, wow. but my patients are dying because of the toxins. So he turned an environmental activist. Hmm. Interesting. He says, "In order to chi- practice Chinese medicine, you have you, in his capacity, he chose to 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 really uh, bring awareness to the environmental destruction." He says, "Though even the water is not fit to drink, what else can you? <laughs> you, right. know, you, you have to cook your herbs in the water. Mm. Says, if that, it's like we don't even. So he says, in China, in many places, he says we don't even take care of the most fundamental elements of life. What what is there to talk about the medicine? But Very I would well, said. well, but I would respond, Leo, that." We and this is kind of what came to me while I was writing the book on um, the healing, healing virtue power, Sun Tzu Miao. Um, to me, the definition of medicine in the classical texts is so much broader than the, de- and that's why I I changed it actually from m- the great physician to great doctor to great healer. In, because what we are do like there is a difference between practicing medicine and healing, and the word healing has that larger dimension. So when we think of medicine with a capital M as you know, this is good medicine for the planet, which is exactly how you just put it, Zeph. That was so beautiful. Or the Native American cultures of the Southwest, they always talk about medicine. Everything is exactly. medicine. The directions, nature, burning sage. I mean, a healing had, song. Yes, a the Ebeche of the Navajo. If someone had diphtheria, they would chant in teams, twenty-four hours, eight hours of stretch. They chant over the patient a pure yin yang chant. Hey ya, hey ya, ho ye, ho ye, ho ye. Repeat. It had a rhythmic structure and a pulsation of sound. Now, getting back to what we said earlier about uh, Leo about the pollution in Malaysia, uh, the the Hopi. Because I worked with a Hopi, I uh, used to have a magazine that was partially macrobiotics back in the 70s, partially to aid the Hopi and Native Americans of the Southwest, making people aware of the situation there. And we would visit the the, Ho- the uh, Hopi villages. And they used to just throw their used scraps of food, pottery, things like that off the cliffs. you know, And then it would just decompose, go back to the earth. But they never got the message that throwing tin cans, plastic bags, and other modern garbage doesn't biodegrade, so the cliffs were covered with trash. They just never really got that message. I also, of course, saw something. I'm not a woo-woo type of person. I consider myself a rationalist in many ways. But I drove up to the Hopi reservation, to the town of Hotevia, and I saw a cornfield with a little cloud over it, with thunder and lightning and mm-hmm. rain going right onto mm-hmm. the cornfield with blue sky all around it. Mm-hmm. I was not hallucinating. Oh, no. It was a real-time experience. I could not believe my eyes what I saw. But there it was. Oh, yeah. So There was still some magic there, you know. So Yeah. They knew, they knew about the relationship of heaven and earth and uh, how to utilize their humanity to, um, to access that, you know. And it's such a different view of the role of humanity in traditional Chinese culture, where I think especially in America, we so think of humans as, we think of, when you think of the ideal place for a lot of Americans, it's wilderness that is not touched by humans. And humans mm-hmm. are this force that 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 destroys nature and that's why humans just move on and on further and further west and now we're kind of at the eight at the place where we've run out of places to go and this is why people are self-destructing because there's no new frontiers for these people like jerry garcia used to say the grateful dead we're like the last frontier for a lot of people which is why all these deadheads are coming to our shows you know yeah but 
in Chinese culture, and I would say to a certain extent in European culture, like I used to spend my summers and a lot of my winters in Switzerland. And they have, there's a landscape there that has been shaped by human interaction with nature for, for thousands of years. And what is the role of humans in in, in net, like in Chinese culture? Right, we are between heaven and earth, so we we have a unique role that is now I think really relevant to the conversation. What um, that we are not just a force of destruction; we can also be a force of of restoration. And and in China, I mean, Leo, oh, yeah. right? In traditional Chinese culture, it's humans who are harmonizing heaven and earth. So how do we yes. translate that? And how do we, the way you just put it, Zev, how can we, or, or Leo and your story of the Chinese medicine practitioner who became an envir environmental activist, how can we use the vehicle and the language of Chinese medicine practice to heal, to, to heal in a more meaningful, in a broader, not more meaningful, there's no such thing, but in a different way that goes just beyond healing the physical body of the patient. Well, again, I'm, I always tell people that the first three chapters of the Su Wen are a guidebook for living. And I think we need to put out some guidebooks because there's not enough for the patients. There's not enough for the public. There, I mean, there's this new book by Tony Daly that looks very nice I just got, which I have in my waiting room. But books for the general public teaching them how to enter the world of Chinese medicine, mm -hmm. other than as a patient for acupuncture or herbal medicine, is is sorely lacking. Um, it's There's so much in the teachings itself in terms of living with the season, go to sleep earlier in the winter, in the springtime walking in the courtyard and loosening your hair. It sounds obvious and easy in some ways, but it's not, especially for a modern person who's bound by digital time and having to be at an appointment at a certain time, fly red eyes somewhere, wait in an airport, and then fly somewhere else again. All the circadian disruption that modern human life entails, these things are very valuable and actually require real concrete changes in lifestyle. And I think we're not doing a good enough job of teaching. I have a, There's another little book that was put out by a Japanese physician in the, uh, I think it was 17th century. The, it was the, uh, the uh, his name was Akikin Kaibara, K-A-I-B-A-R-A. And the Japanese name is Yojo-kun, which translates out as Yangsheng Shun in Chinese. And uh, Shambhala Press put out a translation by a really great translator. Japanese, he translates from Japanese to English. He's written a lot of travel books and samurai books. William, I'm forgetting his last name, but he's really legit. And it's, but they put out the book as Cultivating Chi for some reason, C-H apostrophe I. Mm -hmm. And it's like a little handbook. Here's bathing, hot springs, sex, sleeping, food, Composure, meditation, uh, Tao Yin practices. It's all in this little book. And this is one I do recommend for my patients, even though it was written in the uh, you know, 17th century. You know, this, he was a retired samurai. There was, at this point in history, there wasn't any uh, martial use for samurai. So they became physicians instead and, and scholars, which... I'll have to I'll have to find it. I know what you're talking about. Um, I'll have to find the translation and put it in the show notes. That's what the show notes are for. Um, yeah, Leo. Can I ask you because you are sure. you are Malay Chinese. So how do you because you are from the Chinese culture and you're practicing in America. So how yes. do you how do you do this in your practice with your patients? Can you clarify your question a little bit more? I think there's more to your question, but I'm not getting. That. Okay, how do you in how do you manifest or incorporate the aspects of Chinese medicine that go beyond healing the physical body? 
Oh, okay. As a so, as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, as somebody who comes from that culture. So, for those who are a little bit familiar with the region, especially Malaysia and Singapore, we grew up very multicultural, right? Multicultural, multilinguistic, multireligion. So my childhood experience involved, you know. Speaking Mandarin or other Chinese dialects or languages in the home, and the moment I cross the gate, I assume a different persona because I have to then interact with people who speak another language of another religion. I go to school; that's another、mm-hmm. environment. So I'm used to like a chameleon. Is that what the word is?、Mm-hmm. Shifting. My linguistic, religious, and cultural persona multiple times within eight hours, <laughs> right? So, so I don't know why, but in my practice, I seem to attract a, people of from many different nations. You know, I counted、uh-huh. like thirty-three. What fun! So wow! All, I'm all so the jealous. Asians, the Europeans, <laughs> the Asians, even some people from Africa and the Middle East and India, you know. So that was my blessing, you know. So I had to adapt. So what came out for me was seeing the the wisdom of everybody's food culture from the standpoint of Chinese medicine. So what's the what's the similarity between like a Parmesan cheese or the Italian who says Parmigiano Reggiano with miso, the Japanese miso, with the fish fish sauces from Thailand and Vietnam?、Mm-hmm. Right. They well, ri- yeah, they do arise out of the original local ecology as a response, you know, intuitively perhaps, but. How to harmonize with the environment in which you're living, with the plants and animals and liquids and waters that surround you, and yeah, that's what I'm loving about reading, you know,、uh, Paul Unschuld's translation of the Bunsao Zongmu, which it, because he, he it's categorized by the five phases, and you have all these local. He traveled all over、yeah. China and found all these local practices and folk uses of substances, as well as. You know more official Chinese medical uses of substances. It's just a fascinating study of natural history, really. And people bring it out in their cuisines. You know. Yes. So I'm like, I'm doing the Ben Chao Gang Mu for the world. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> how I characterize my project. Fantastic.、Right? That's so, great. So because we're so interconnected now on YouTube, you can just look at YouTube videos of people's food travels. You see the similarity, but but、mm-hmm. with the Wisdom and the eye of Chinese medicine were unique in the way that we can see the similarity between them, right? Like the par- like the cheeses and the fish sauces and the misos are great、mm-hmm. sources of, of essence of jing, a pre-digested essence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in all of、mm-hmm. our foods.、Uh, so you can actually, so that's really part of healing. I think is. Recognizing and honoring where people come from, yes. Because because in America there is a sense of once all the immigrants came to America, to a, a different level of ex, to a different extent, they had to negotiate this embracing of the American identity and way of life with their home culture, the melting pot. Yes, yes. and at the. the My daughter wrote a great paper about the melting pot when she was in high school. I think she was still in high school, and she critiqued the melting pot. And it was so interesting coming from her, because I was, you know, I was German, and I moved to the U.S. when I was nineteen or twenty, and. I would, as a German, I'm not aware how special my homemade sauerkraut is because that's just what I do, or or my、yes. my bread. And and my daughter made a great point, which I'm sure has been made a million times, that the idea of the melting pot is really does us a disservice, and it's、yes. it's it's so much nicer to think of celebrating all these different curries and the way you just listed it, Leo. 
And and instead of putting it all together in one pot, having these little dishes with curry and sauerkraut and kimchi and and yes. and fish sauce. It's funny because a lot of the divide in this country now right now is really over this issue. I can speak, and I've lived on the same block now for like 33 years in San Diego. When I first came here, it was basically like a, a Navy town on the conservative side, uh, middle American. Most people came here from places like Omaha and Kansas and places <laughs> like that. And now my neighborhood, if I just look at my own block, we have a Pakistani family across the street, Indian family two doors down, Navy guy next door who is like... Um, very quote unquote liberal, um, Chinese family, three generations, catty corner right across the street, um, two French families up the block. Mm -hmm. It's become an international neighbor. It still looks the same, although it's definitely gentrified a lot, but it's gone from kind of more like a middle American type of thing to a multicultural area. And I, it's much friendlier and much nicer in my opinion as a result of that and and another nice side effect is that the neo-nazis that were living in the neighborhood here are gone you know mm -hmm. um, i mean it, it there was an attack on our young rabbi here a couple of years ago on one of our holidays by someone who was actually a south american not even a, a middle american chanting white power and uh the people in this neighborhood here did a demonstration against anti-Semitism, racism, and so forth. So, uh, um, I feel very much. I feel very comfortable with those changes. But as we see, there is definitely a battle going on over identity in this mm -hmm. country. Although America never really had an identity based on one thing. If you want to have an identity in this country, it's the Native Americans who are displaced. You know. Yeah. So, um, we're all from somewhere else. Everyone is from somewhere else here. We should never forget that. We are still guests on this landscape. And there's a, I want to kind of bring up the point that there is a biological basis for this, for this diversity. I, I remember reading yes. about this research in Finland, I think it was in Finland. They were looking at the bio meme of the immigrants to Finland over three or four generations and measuring how much of the biomeme is Finnish and how much of it is from the motherland. So they said it took about three to four generations for the biomeme to become 100% Finnish that, that resonate to the soil of Finland. But even by the third generation, I think half of the biomeme in the intestines of the third generation is still from the homeland where they came from. That's fascinating. You know, it's in really the, interesting. Yeah. Ling Shu 64 has a whole thing on constitutional types. You have your Jueyin type, your Taiyin type, Tai, excuse me, Taiyang type, etc. And there are there are emphases on constitutional types and how people are different north, south, east, west, of course. In the Suwen, people in the north, they develop moxibustion, people in the mm. center develop bodywork. And people on the uh, eastern side ate too much fish and, and salt, yes. and then they developed needle therapies. And in the west, in the high mountains, they developed herbal medicine. You always have this thing. But now everything is, is kind of mixed up. So on one hand, we have to keep a root in what you just described, Leo. On the other hand, we have to also adapt to th these changes of mass immigration around the world. And yes. uh, mixing and people traveling, pipes. like and travel, like most yeah. of my neighbors here on in the Pacific Northwest. If you can afford to, you spend several weeks in Hawaii or or right. Arizona yeah. or somewhere to dry out and get some sun in the middle of the winter. Like, what mm -hmm. does that do to your body? Yeah. Mm. So I think different patients groups will have will necessitate a different recommendation because there are some who are quite identified with their uh, heritage, even though they might consciously, intellectually want to uh, soften that, but their body is very honest. Because Ooh, Leo, this is really, yeah. this is a great way to Because for example, it. I would say, 
uh, I have plenty, not plenty, enough of Central Americans and South American patients, right? And they're a lot like the Southeast Asians and the Asians, whether even though they have come to America and assimilated, their food, their their digestion is still very much tied into their homeland,、mm-hmm. right? So. Whenever they're sick, a lot of times they are homesick. They're missing the flavors and the combination of mom's cooking and the、bring、bacteria. We have、right? to bring it back.、Mm-hmm. So I said, you go back to you know El Salvador or、uh, Guatemala, and you go、mm-hmm. eat your mom's cooking, and you come back and tell me how you feel afterwards. You know, it's funny you bring that up, Leo, because、mm, what I'm、so、finding. <laughs> I'm going to Germany on Tuesday. In、oh, five days, I'm gonna be eating white asparagus. It's Sparger season I... in Germany, and I can't wait. I'm so. My mom sends me pictures of asparagus because it's one of the special things, and the season is really short. And it's what the area around Würzburg is famous for: the asparagus and all the other people that come to the Rotenburg conference. They're always like all the other foreigners. They're like. God, what is it about all the restaurants serving spargel? And it's all about spargel soup and spargel salad. And God, what is it? And so, all the Germans how, are like spargel. We have to eat spargel every day because it's only for a few weeks. How long are you going to be gone, Sabina? Two weeks. Okay.、Um, it's funny because I was in the natural food store yesterday and、yeah. bought some asparagus. Yeah. And I said to the checkout person, I said, "Well, you know." He said, "Well, the asparagus looks more purple." I said, "As the season progresses, the, the asparagus gets more purple." But I, I said, "I bet you never saw white asparagus." White asparagus? I didn't know there was such a thing. Really? I、it's、said, "Well, I don't." Well, you, you don't see it in the stores here very much, if at all, and it's a delicacy if you find it. But I said, "Yeah, there is such a thing." But、um, getting back to Leo's point, and then I have to start s- s- winding down here.、Um, This is one reason I think, guys, that the microbiome has become such a huge concern, even in biomedicine. At this point, I've been, I've been cross-referencing different disciplines, you know, in cancer cases, neurological cases, autoimmune cases recently, and everyone agrees in the. Biomedical world, which is surprising, that the microbiome, the but the uh, the uh, the uh, brain, intestinal axis, the you know the connection of the microbiome with immunity and so on, it's become very very important, and it's also led me back to reexamining the uh, the pwei pi, the、uh, spleen stomach current of Li Dongyuan. In terms of、mm. his teachings and formulas and so forth, as,、mm. you know, because the spleen is really one of the centers in all this—not the only center, but it's definitely a, a lens that I'm trying to look through again as we deal with all this、mm. stuff. So, anyway,、yeah. I, I think if I, I'm going to propose that when you get back, Sabina, we do a part two of this discussion because it's fantastic, and I think we just really have begun. Yes, <laughs> that's the whole idea with the podcast. We go on、yeah. and on and on. It's great because I'm and I'm really enjoying interacting both with both you and Leo t- and today and same here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us spread the word. And last but definitely not least, go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth. 